Good morning, church. It is great to be with you. My name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. And this is a big week because on Wednesday, it's... Oh, boy. We're in for it. Uh, okay. Wednesday is Halloween. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it. Uh, it's this Wednesday. Now, here's the deal. Christians get all kinds of weird on Halloween. I addressed it last year. We're going to address again this year. We are not offering you any events at any of our campuses on Wednesday. Because what I have found is that Christians often want to have a little holy huddle and get away from, you know, all the other people and let's gather together. We are not offering you anything as a church because I believe, and you can disagree with me, I believe that Halloween in the American culture is the single greatest opportunity you have to meet your neighbors. They will be out of their house or at least opening their front door. It's an amazing thing that happens one day a year. So take advantage of it. And so I encourage you last year, I'm going to encourage you this year, be intentional to meet and connect with the people who live around you. It is an easy opportunity that you will not have any other time of the year. It's never going to get easier than it is on Wednesday night. And so I just encourage you to take advantage of this. Last year, I did the same thing. I was blown away by how many of you came to me after Halloween and said, we met our neighbors that we have lived next to for years and never talked to them, but they were out of their house on Halloween. I said, I know this is amazing. So here's what I'm going to invite you. Would you actually just pray about it? Like, God, I want you to open some doors for me to connect with people who live around me and have some conversations and who knows what will happen. Just meet them, connect with them, get outside of your own home. Uh, those are the people God has put around you in your life. Now, if you are really bothered right now and you're like, I cannot believe the pastor's saying that, please don't email me. Here's what you can do, all right? I got an alternative for you. If you want to stay at home and protest Halloween, you get to pray for your neighbors on Wednesday night, all right? So just lock your doors, turn all your lights off, and pray for them. That's, what, that's the other option. But the rest of us, I'm going to encourage you, go be the church. Sound good? Okay, all right. Uh, we're continuing in our I Am series. So if you've got your journals, uh, we are in week four of those. I encourage you to get that out. I'm going to give you a number of things to write down today. So if you like to write down in your journals, it's going to be a good one. We're going to go on a little journey. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 10. So if you've got a physical analog Bible with you, that's great. Get that out. Go to, to the New Testament. Or if you've got a, a Bible app on a phone, you can get that out as well. Uh, we use our Bible every week, so I would love for you to read along in your own text as well as you learn how to, how to process through what we're doing together. Uh, this whole series has been in the Gospel of John. So if you've been with us, we're in the same book, just bookmark it, and you'll know where to go each and every week of this series. We're looking at seven different things that Jesus said about himself. That, that, again, we often wonder, what is Jesus like and how do we talk about him? But it's easy to go back and go, what did Jesus say about himself and how do we understand that? So today we're going to look at this image that he says, I am the good shepherd. And, and this is a beautiful image. It comes right after what we saw last week is where he said, I am the gate. And if you were with us last week, when we unpacked, that was actually a function or a role that the shepherd would play for his sheep. And if you missed that, I encourage you to go watch that one online. But here's what I want you to understand is, is once you experience life, which was abundant life, as we saw last week, in the sheep pen with Jesus as the gate, then you get to figure out what does life look like when Jesus is our shepherd? And that's what we're going to explore today. What kind of a life should we have? How are we to respond if we're envisioning Jesus as a shepherd for us. 
And so if you're with me in John chapter 10, we're going to begin reading in verse 11. Now again, this comes right after what we read last week. We saw last week the first 10 verses of chapter 10, and now we're going to keep going. So Jesus talked about this image of, uh, of a shepherd and a gate, and now he's just going to keep it going into this next section. Here's what he says. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. And then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. And they too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. I love this passage, especially uh, in light of the rhetoric that we hear all around us every day. Uh, of all the divisions and all the reasons why we should not be together. and Why they're the enemy and they're bad. And to all that, Jesus says, I am uniting uh, everyone under this good shepherd. And there is only one flock, there's only one shepherd, and they all will know my voice. And it's just a beautiful image that, that this is where Jesus is going. This is what Jesus is up to. And so if you want to live in a world that is constantly more divided, you're going to be at odds with what Jesus is saying here. He's trying to bring us together under his voice as one flock. And it's a beautiful image for our time especially. Now, shepherd uh, is an interesting uh, you know, metaphor for Jesus to use. And the, the challenge with that is when you think of shepherd, you probably envision Jesus. You probably envision him, he's got a robe and maybe he's got a little staff, but then he's carrying a lamb around. Like, I don't know why he's carrying a lamb around, but how many of us are envisioning Jesus is always walking around with a sheep, maybe for a sermon illustration whenever needed, you know, but he just carries this thing around and it's like, oh, he's so sweet. And, and the problem is that's not what they would have thought of when they heard Jesus say this. And so whenever you read a passage that sounds different to us than it sounded to them, we got to do a little bit of work to figure out how would they have heard this? What would have come into their mind? And here's what I would uh, like to submit to you. It's very different than what's probably in your mind right now. Oh, the good shepherd. I love this image, right? That's not their reaction when Jesus said it. Now, it's kind of like, have you ever ordered something online and you see the picture and you're like, this is going to be amazing. And then you get it and it looks nothing like what you ordered. And you're going, what in the world? And you go back to the descriptions. You're like, that isn't even the same product. And I hate that feeling of going, I thought it was going to be this. By the time I got it, it was this. And you always feel like I was a little bit tricked there or something was going on. And so you want, you know, that truth in advertising. Well, I came across somebody that took this to a whole nother level. Check out how much truth in advertising is in this picture. Give you a second to get the joke, and if not, have your neighbor explain to you. Um, I love that. Like, someone's like, wow, that's impressive. You know what I mean? Like, really talk about getting what you're advertising. That's great. And so here's my goal today, is that when you hear Jesus say, I am the good shepherd, that you would hear it from a biblical point of view the way they would have heard it, and not in our current cultural point of view. Right? Now, this is a challenge uh, because what I'm going to uh, argue to you is a lot of things happen in the Old Testament leading up to this point that most of us are unaware of. And so I want to take you on a 
little journey. Uh, we're going to travel through a whole bunch of history of the Bible in a really short amount of time. And so if you know the Bible, uh, you're going to know a lot of these stories. You're going to go, oh, I've never connected them like this. If you don't know the Bible, I'm going to give you a bunch of fun things that all connect together, and it's going to be a wild ride. All right? So buckle up. Here we go. The first murder in history. Didn't think I was going there, did you? The first murder in history was a farmer killing a shepherd. Probably haven't thought about history like this. I'm going to show you how much shepherds plays into everything. Now, there's a story that begins the, the, the biblical narrative. And so here's what we're going to do. If you want to write down a biblical look at shepherds, I'm going to give you five key connecting points that you find throughout Scripture. Now, these are uh, just five that I picked. You can pick a different list. Uh, but this is the journey I want to take you on. And if you want to remember, hey, what did we talk about? Uh, these five will hopefully jog your memory and go, oh, I remember this whole, you know, trajectory that we're going to go through. So uh, number one, I want you to write Cain and Abel. Right? In the very opening pages, you have the story of Cain and Abel. Now, if you've heard this story, you likely have not thought of it in terms of farmers and shepherds. But check this out. Genesis chapter 4. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. Those are important details. Those are details we normally overlook because these are, you know, Adam and Eve's kids. And, and if you know the story, what we normally remember is that Cain is going to kill Abel. But notice what the scriptures tell us. Abel's a shepherd. Cain is a farmer. And so literally the opening page of the scripture is a farmer killing a shepherd. Now there's lots we can learn about this. And let me just take one moment to have a, a little aside for us. One of the things that's fascinating about this story and in light of uh, this week is that when Cain kills Abel, it tells us that the blood of Abel cries out to God from the ground. That's an unbelievable passage. There is an unjust taking of life. And, and God could have stopped it, but he didn't. But it does not mean God does not care. And in fact, the blood of Abel is crying out to God from the soil. And God is listening. If you follow the news this week, you know that there is one of the worst shootings ever. Uh, as far as I understand it, uh, more Jews were killed on American soil this week than, than ever. And you go... What do we do about that? Well, the first thing you have to understand is that any unjust taking of life is an affront to God first. And you hear it in the opening pages of Scripture that God is intimately aware of when this happens. And he cares. Now, he may not always stop it, but he cares immensely. And you find that in this story. Now, you might wonder, well, what's going on here? Now, the, the way we normally tell the story is that, uh, well, you know, there, there's two different, you know, uh, sacrifices. They both are worshiping God. And Cain was jealous of Abel. And that's certainly part of the story. But another part of the story is that there is an inherent tension between their professions. Now, you may not have thought about this, but if you read history, uh, shepherds and, and farmers are at odds. Why? If you have one piece of land, you cannot use that one piece of land for both a shepherd and for a farmer. You have to decide. They are mutually exclusive. And, and so a farmer is going to use land for a certain purpose. A shepherd is going to use it for a totally different purpose. And they cannot coexist on the same plot of land. Now, again, at Cain and Abel, I don't think they're necessarily at odds for space. Uh, but you see this tension in the opening pages. And this tension is going to play out in a variety of different ways. So let's fast forward a little bit. You get to a guy named Joseph. Joseph is an unbelievable story. And I'd encourage you, if you ever want to read an amazing story of God's faithfulness, read the story of Joseph. Basically, Joseph follows God and has almost nothing to show for it for the majority of his life. 
He has hardship after hardship after hardship, rejection and disappointment and disillusionment. And in the midst of it, scriptures tell us that God is with him and a miraculous thing happens. But Joseph is, is, you know, as a shepherd, his family are shepherds, but his brothers sell him into slavery in Egypt. So number two in our journey is Egypt. You go ahead and write that down. Because Joseph, this shepherd in obscurity that has no connection with anything, gets sold into Egypt, and then an unbelievable thing happens. He rises to power and becomes second in command to Pharaoh. And again, this is a way longer story than I have time for. But he, he rises in ranks, and eventually he makes up with his brothers who had sold him in slavery to begin with. And after they make up, eventually his brothers want to move into Egypt with him. Now, this presents a problem. Because if you understand Egyptian culture, you understand the way the Nile works, Egyptians were farmers. They're not shepherds. And so you have Joseph and his family who are shepherds who want to move in to a land that is known for being farmers. And Joseph realizes this could go bad. And so Joseph develops an ingenious way to navigate this that we find in the story. And again, many of us, even if you know the story, you may not have noticed this detail. Check out Genesis chapter 46. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh, and I will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were living in the land of Canaan, have come to me. The men are shepherds. They tend livestock. And they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. And he says this, when Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what is your occupation? You should answer. He's coaching his brothers on what to say. Your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Just as this. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Why? Because they're farmers. And you have this same struggle happening. So you have Joseph and his family are shepherds. They're about to move in to, to be with farmers. And Joseph's going, I don't want you all to get killed by the Egyptians. So we're going to have to navigate it. And notice what happens. They get the region of Goshen. They get their own little area to have their flocks. Because you cannot have flocks and farms in the same spot. And so Joseph navigates this issue because he knows we have to figure out how to have these shepherds live with these farmers. And he does it brilliantly. He fast forward. And a few you know, generations go and, and, and there's this Pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph and turns the Israelites into slaves. And then a guy named Moses rises up and God uses Moses to deliver the people out of Egypt, eventually taking them to what is known as the promised land. And, and through the leadership of Joshua, they get their own land. And when they get their own land, they shift their identity that they had had in Egypt. And now instead of thinking of themselves as shepherds, they think of themselves as farmers. And so you have Israel, you know, as an identity, shifts from being shepherds. They become farmers. And then an interesting thing happens. They begin to look down on shepherds because now they view themselves as farmers. So early in the story, you have them being shepherds. And then it, this transition happens. And all of a sudden, they have their own land. And, and they think of themselves as farmers. And they look down upon shepherds. Now, there's one notable exception to this, and this is where the confusion comes in. Because the notable exception is what most Christians think of when they think of the image shepherd. Now, the notable exception is a guy named King David. And so on the third step of our little journey here, write King David. Now, here's a challenge. If you know David and you've read what David writes, you go, well, this is what everyone thought about shepherds. And what you have to understand is David was an anomaly. 
David did not represent the thinking of his day. He represented something really remarkable and unique. The problem is we assume, well, if David thought that, everyone thought that. But that's to miss the story of David and the significance of what God had done in his life. 2 Samuel chapter 7 says this. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. God goes, look, David, you went from being a shepherd to being the king, and it wasn't because of you. That is not a normal career trajectory for a shepherd. It is because I took you from being a shepherd, and I made you king. And God is saying, this is a remarkable journey. You would never expect that to happen because God supernaturally made it happen. And so David has this really bizarre, unique experience because he is a king who had been a shepherd. Now, again, if we're not uh, careful, we can go, oh, yeah, that's how everybody thought of it. That wasn't. This was such a weird story for a shepherd to become king. It just wasn't normal. But God had done that. Now, David's the one that writes Psalm 23, which is maybe one of the most well-known chapters in all the Bible about God being his shepherd. Why? Because that was David's story. That was David's history. That's how David thought of God. And yet, it does not represent the collective thinking in his day. Let me illustrate this. One scholar says it like this. The rabbis ask with amazement how in view of the despicable nature of shepherds, one can explain why God was called my shepherd in Psalm 23.1. Basically, the rabbis were puzzled how on earth could David talk about God as a shepherd? They cannot wrap their mind around it because it's so weird. And yet for most of us, we go, well, this is our starting point. If that's your starting point, you won't understand the significance of what Jesus is doing with it. This is the exception that proves the rule. Because most people did not think highly of shepherd. And so to call God a shepherd would be an incredible insult. Now fast forward. As, as, you know, the, the more and more history goes on, you just write number four, Israel. Because as Israel continues in generation after generation, the role of a shepherd continues to decline. It gets worse and worse, and they think even less of shepherds. I can illustrate this to you in a number of ways. Zephaniah chapter 2. The Lord says, I will destroy you, and none will be left. The land by the sea will become pastures, having wells for shepherds and pens for flocks. God's like, look, I'm going to destroy that land so badly that the only thing it's going to be good for is for a shepherd to use. It was like, no, not a shepherd. Don't do that. You know, it'd be like saying, hey, I'm going to decimate your land. It's going to be a garbage dump. It's like, no, don't do that. This is the equivalent. Like God is using shepherds as smack talk. Like I'm going to, I'm going to make it so bad. Only a shepherd could use your land. I mean, this is again, the role of a shepherd. It's so low on their, uh, on their scale. Uh, check out uh, Amos chapter 7. Uh, Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd. And I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Amos is like, look, started, started from the bottom, now I'm here, Right? That's an illustration for the young people in the room. Uh, <laughs> have them explain it to you later. Um, Amos is saying, look, 
this is not a normal trajectory. God did something. And this is the point. When you read these, they are drawing our attention to an exception that is so remarkable that it's worth pointing out. God took a shepherd and made him a prophet. Whoa, that is weird. Because no one starts as a shepherd and thinks that anything else is coming let alone a king or a prophet. So when God does something, it draws attention. They're like, wow, how did you become a prophet after being a shepherd? And it was like, God did it. God brought me to this place. We even see God use uh, the idea of a shepherd, not even literally, but metaphorically to, to uh, add condemnation upon his leaders. Check this out, Ezekiel chapter 34. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Now here he's not even talking about literal shepherds. He's talking about spiritual leaders. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? He's saying, look, you're bad leaders. You don't even care about the people. You care only about yourself. And what is the image that he uses? He uses a shepherd to communicate his disappointment, his disgust with their leadership. This was what they thought of shepherds. And you see it all over the place, over and over again. Now, it begins with a simple thing of like, imagine your kid comes to you and, and he said, hey, little David, what do you want to be when you grow up? And David says, I want to be a shepherd. You're like, no, not a shepherd. Anything else, don't do that. Who do you talk to that told you that? And he's like, you would never want your kid to grow up and be a shepherd. But then it, it moves. And then it's not just, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Now it's like, hey, I want to be a shepherd. We don't talk to them. We don't associate with them. So then if little David came home and said, I met a shepherd friend at school today. You're like, no, you don't talk to them anymore. They are below us. They are not the kind of people that we talk with. Now, the reality is some of these shepherds were good and just got, you know, lumped into the stereotype. But a lot of them deserved the reputation that we got. Now, it's a little confusing because what we have to realize is it wasn't necessarily that the shepherds were abusing the sheep. But what it was is the way the shepherds interacted with culture around them, the way they impacted society around them, was the issue that everyone else had against them. And I can illustrate this by reading a little bit about the context of shepherding in that day. Here's what one scholar says. The dryness of the ground made it necessary for the flocks of sheep and cattle to move about during the rainless summer and to stay for months at a time in isolated areas far from the owner's home. Hence, herding sheep was an independent and responsible job. Indeed, in view of the threat of wild beasts and robbers, it could even be dangerous. Sometimes the owner himself or his sons did the job. But usually, it was done by hired shepherds, who only too often did not justify the confidence reposed in them. Now, what he's illustrating here is that shepherding in this time, by the time you get to Jesus, was such a hard job. You were looked down upon, no one liked you, it was dangerous. I mean, it had all these issues that it was harder and harder to find people to do it. Now, they know there, there was need for it, but nobody wanted to be around them and no one wanted to have anything to do with them. They just wanted to benefit from them. So eventually you get more and more hired hands who do not own the sheep, who do not really care for the sheep. They're just doing a job. And this is what Jesus is referring to in our passage today. When he says there's a shepherd and then there's a hired hand. And the hired hand's the one that runs whenever there's danger. The hired hand doesn't really care. He's just in it for a paycheck. 
And that begins to show you why they hated shepherds so much. It's primarily because of the nature of the job in those days. Now, many of these hired hands would bring their flock and intentionally allow their flock into someone else's land. Now, imagine if you owned a farm and that was your livelihood. And that was, you know, your, your business. That's how you take care of your family. It's how you put food on the table. And one morning you wake up only to realize that a shepherd had let his flock through your farm at night. And you can imagine going, I'm ruined. I, I, this, this is devastating. All because one shepherd decided he was going to let his sheep into your land. And this is what would happen. And so there was this animosity, this hatred towards shepherds because of what they would do. Now, rabbis banned pasturing sheep and goats in Israel, except on desert plains. It was like they created a a smoking section for shepherds. Like, look, we know you need lamb, but you can't do it here. You got to go out there. And they created designated areas for them that no one else wanted. You can go out there because we don't want you here in Israel. You begin to see a picture of how they were viewed. Rabbis made it illegal to buy wool, milk, or a baby goat from a shepherd. Why? Because it was presumed to be stolen. There's no reason a shepherd would legally have these things. So you could not legally buy one of those items from a shepherd. They assume, yeah, a shepherd probably stole that from someone else. Again, you begin to see the picture of how they viewed them. A shepherd couldn't fulfill a judicial office. And their testimony could not be admitted in court as a witness. They had no credibility whatsoever. That's how they were thought of. Now, in Judaism, they had an oral law of how they operated day to day. They eventually wrote this down. It became what's called the Mishnah. In the Mishnah, you can read about how their culture worked. And there's one passage that talks about shepherds, and it refers to them as being incompetent. That's how they thought of shepherds. There's another passage, this is what I find most moving, that said that if you came across someone who was stranded in a pit and you realized they needed help, but you realized it was a shepherd, you had no obligation to help them. You could legally and morally pass by someone in, whose life is in jeopardy as long as you knew it was a shepherd. How much do you have to hate someone to get to that level? Where they, they cease to be human to you. They are subhuman. Oh, their life doesn't matter. Don't even worry about it. There's no legal ramifications. God won't be mad. It's just a shepherd. Now, some of you may know what it feels like to be in that pit, to be viewed that way, to feel like you were subhuman to the people around you, that that others would just keep on walking if they saw you in need. Or maybe you know what it feels like to walk past that person. And for whatever reason, you determined, I don't have any obligation to help them. And it begins to give you a picture of this culture in which shepherds were dehumanized and were devalued to this level. And in light of all of that, let's go back to John chapter 10 and revisit this unbelievable statement. I am the good shepherd. What on earth is Jesus doing here? If you begin to understand the way they viewed shepherds in this culture, with everything we just saw about this, what's going on? So number five on your list, write Jesus. Because Jesus intentionally adds himself to this weird ongoing saga of shepherds. What is going on? Why would Jesus use this image? And here's why I think it's going on. Jesus adopts a flawed image to show the power of his goodness. 
Jesus is saying, look, I'm so good, I'm a good shepherd. And some of them, probably many of them, would be hearing that and going, what? That's not even possible. How do you, how do you have a good shepherd? That's like an oxymoron. What do you mean a good shepherd? If Jesus would have said, hey, I am the good rabbi, he would have went, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Cool. Great. You're, you're a good version of that. But he doesn't say that. He says, I'm a good shepherd. To which everyone who heard that would have went, What? Why on earth would you call yourself that? Why would you attach yourself to that? And I think what Jesus is doing is saying, I'm so good that I I can redeem even a flawed image such as a shepherd. I'm not any shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. And he takes an image that was so loaded with baggage and begins to redeem it. And when you see this, you begin to realize that God is doing something bizarre. Now, when Jesus is born in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, it tells us that God announces through these angels that, that there is this baby born that is going to be God himself. And you know who he tells first? Shepherds who had no credibility, who no one would believe, and who were the social outcasts because the good shepherd had just been born. And God was upending things as they were. And where they would look down upon the shepherds, Jesus says, I'm one of them. And Jesus always does this. Whatever you want to point your finger at someone and dehumanize someone, Jesus is always with that person every single time. So whoever today you want to dehumanize and go, you are less than, guess what? See Jesus in that person because that's the point he's saying here. The, the, The people you hate, people you think are unworthy of you, I'm one of them. You begin to realize the profound nature of what he's saying here. Now, just like shepherds got a bad reputation, the reality is God gets a bad reputation. Now, this has happened all throughout time, and and it happens even today. And maybe you came in here today, and and you're going, yeah, I don't don't like God. I I don't like what this God is about, and and I'm just here to check this out, but I I don't follow this kind of a God because he seems a little bit like a monster. And I actually understand that. I've heard enough stories. I've, I've listened to enough pain from people to realize why so many people are hesitant of the biblical view of God. I wrote down a few. Maybe you look at confusing passages in the Bible and they seem to show that God is just angry. You look at those passages you go, I don't want to follow a God like that. He sounds crazy. Maybe you watch hypo- hypocritical Christians who say one thing and they do another. You go, I don't want anything to do with that. You watch Christians who say what they believe but don't seem to actually follow it through. That don't look much like the rest of the world once it actually comes down to it. Maybe you watch suffering and evil in the world. And you wonder, why doesn't God do something about it? If God's all-powerful and God is good, why doesn't he interject? Why doesn't he stop it? Maybe you've been told that God causes everything to happen. And so you look at some of the things that have happened in your life and you give God the credit or the blame for those. And you go, God, how could you cause that to happen in my life? And God becomes responsible for that. Maybe you've been told that God creates some people and their only option is to go to hell. And you go, why would God make people like that? And that's the story that we get told. Or maybe you were told that God is angry and the only thing that could appease his anger was to kill his own son. And after he killed his son, he was happy about it. You go, I don't want to follow a God like that. See, to all of these things and to many more, Jesus tells us that he the good shepherd. And if you start there, you then begin to work backward. 
okay, if that's what God is like, if God looks like Jesus and Jesus is telling us that he's a good shepherd, how would I read that into all these other questions that I have? One theologian says it like this. We cannot read the Bible as we would a cookbook, giving equal weight to everything it teaches. We should rather read it like a novel in which the final chapter forces us to rethink everything that preceded it. More specifically, we should read the Old Testament through the lens of the revelation of God in Christ, and especially through the lens of the cross, which sums up everything Jesus was about. See, it's like when you watch the movie The Sixth Sense. Hate to spoil this for you. Uh, if you watch the movie The Sixth Sense, you get to the end and you're like, I gotta watch the movie again now. Because now you know something that changes the entire rest of the movie and you can't wait to go watch it again. It's the same when you read the Bible. When you get to the part where you go, God looks like Jesus on the cross, that is unbelievable. You go back and you reread everything because now you know the shocking conclusion to the story, that that is what God looks like. You don't read it like a cookbook and go, well, he's a little bit of this, he's a little bit of this. No, the ending, Jesus changes everything and you work backwards. So if we understand that Jesus is our good shepherd, what's our response to him? So if we understand this image and we look at, wow, you're using an intentionally flawed image, what do we do with that? I'll give you two suggestions. Number one, we trust him. We trust him. If Jesus is your good shepherd, your default position toward him should be one of trust. And so whenever you have a question, whenever you wonder what does God really look like, you assume he looks like Jesus. You assume that he is the good shepherd and something else must be going on if anything looks contrary to that. This is what the New Testament writers tell us. The author of Hebrews in chapter 1 says, The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. See, it's exactly what God looks like when you see Jesus, especially Jesus on the cross. That is who God is. So you, you trust that. And you trust that even when it doesn't make sense to us. See, it's easy to trust in a good God when life's going well, when your prayers seem to be answered, when things seem to work out, when you have a little bit of success, you go, yes, God, you're so good. But what about when that's not the situation? What about when God doesn't seem to be answering your prayers? When you don't seem to be experiencing success? When you have hardship after hardship, storm after storm? Is God still good in the midst of that? See, that's when you decide whether or not you're going to trust that God really is the good shepherd. One author, Tyler Huckabee, says it like this. God cannot be made good or bad by our circumstances, but he can be our hope in every kind. See, God's not worth trusting only when things are good. He's worth trusting, especially when things aren't good. You go, oh, I'm going to choose my trust in him because I believe that he's a good shepherd. And so if he's a good shepherd, you trust him. The second thing is you follow him. You say, oh, if, if this is gonna be the shepherd, I'm going to follow him, which, to which we have to ask a question. Where is Jesus going? I'm amazed how many Christians act like, oh, I'm a Christian now, so I've arrived. I believe all the right things. I have all the perfect opinions about the Bible. My opinions about everything make sense, and I can just coast on here uh, until I die. No, that's not the view of Christianity. See, Jesus is a shepherd leading us somewhere. Where is he going? We should be following him. Now, you won't know the destination where Jesus is going to take you. This is what we normally want. Hey, just tell me 20 steps from now, how do I get there? He goes, no, 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 I'm going to give you the direction where you're going to go. Not the destination, the direction. And that just is like, hey, go this way. 
And so you learn to follow him just by direction, not by the destination. But if you trust him, then you learn how to follow him. Now, last week, if you were here, I shared an illustration about Pastor Dave and uh, a spammer that we had on staff or uh, in, in infiltrating our staff. And so we had this spammer. If you were here last week, I told this story uh, about this guy that pretended to be me and asked Dave uh, for a bunch of gift cards. Now, on a side note, I literally ran into people at Starbucks this week who do not attend our church who told me they watched that and thought it was hilarious. Which I don't know what that means, but evidently you guys are sharing that story. And so uh, I told this whole story about this. Here's a question I want to ask. How did Dave know it wasn't me? How did Dave know there was a fake me asking him for something? Because if he didn't know that, this, this whole thing would have gone through and the spammer would have got the gift cards. How did Dave know it wasn't me? And the answer is, it didn't sound like me. Dave knows how I talk. Dave knows how I write. He, he read that and went, that doesn't sound like Jeremy. Let me read part of the request to you and uh, hopefully you can see the same conclusion. This is what Dave was sent. I need you to perform a quick task for me. I'm looking to surprise some of the staffs with Amazon gift cards today. I want you to keep it between us till they get it. I need Amazon gift card of $100 face value each. I need 15 pieces of it amounting to $1,500. If you ever get an email from me with typos and grammar errors, it's not for me. Okay, I can just tell you that. Uh, I don't write things like this. That would, oh, that would be hard for me. And, and so... Dave's like, whoa, that's not Jeremy. So he can clearly go, I'm not going to buy a bunch of gift cards and do this. And then he goes on the whole journey if you were here last week or if you just want to watch it online. So that's all because he knew what my voice sounded like, which got me thinking. I want to close with this question. Are you close enough to Jesus that you can tell if something isn't really him? If he's our good shepherd and we trust him, and we're following him, according to what Jesus is talking about in this idea of a shepherd, we should know what his voice sounds like. And if you know what his voice sounds like, you know when something isn't his voice. And church, I would tell you right now, as I read the news and I listen to many people claiming to be Christian, saying all kinds of things that don't sound like Jesus. And the problem is, if we don't know what Jesus sounds like, we'll go, oh, okay, yeah, that sounds right. That's what he's about. But if you know how to listen to the voice of Jesus, you can go, I don't think that sounds like Jesus. There's something, there's something up here. Hey, you're claiming Jesus, you're pre pretending to talk for him, but it doesn't sound like him because I've heard his voice. Do you know him that well? Because that's the desire of his heart, that you would know his voice. You would recognize when he is speaking to you. And you'd also be able to recognize if some other hired hand comes in and tells you something contrary and you go, whoa, that doesn't sound like Jesus. I'm amazed how many times in talking with someone, uh, how we use, you know, to justify our own sin, we'll go, well, God told me. And then it's like carte blanche, I get to say whatever I want next because I can, you know, use that line, God told me. I've heard that for the craziest things. God told me to go cheat on my spouse and have this affair because he wants me to be happy. God told you that? Yep. Well, guess what? That doesn't sound like Jesus. Like literally, like how do you know though unless you know what Jesus sounds like. And so if you're going, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what he sounds like. and I, I, I've never heard from him. Let me give you two very simple things you could do this week if you want to know what Jesus sounds like. Number one, ask him to speak to you. It's not more complicated than that. 
I'm amazed how many people don't do this. Just sit down, get quiet, remove distractions, and just say, Jesus, I want to hear your voice. Would you please speak to me? Now, so often people assume, oh, God only speaks to pastors and people who graduate seminary. That's baloney, okay? I I have both of those. It's not the way it works. God will speak to anyone, but you have to ask for it and listen. And so I want to encourage you this week. Maybe God's going to speak to you for the very first time in your life. Or maybe the first time in a long time. But just ask, God, would you speak to me? I want to hear your voice. Now, the second thing I would encourage you to do while you're doing that is why don't you commit to reading the Gospel of John? John's the book we've been in this whole series. It's a great snapshot of who Jesus is. And if you read three chapters a day in the Gospel of John, you'd finish it in a week. Why don't you just compare that? Go, okay, here's what Jesus said. And I'm going to ask him to keep saying stuff today. And I'm going to compare the two. And learn to hear the voice of God, who is your good shepherd, who's worthy to be trusted, who's worthy to be followed. I want to close by reading Psalm 23. Now, again, this is what King David wrote. Because he could uniquely see God because of his own story. But here's the thing. David had never met Jesus. He hadn't seen Jesus. So David's understanding of God was not as complete as our understanding is because we have had a chance to see Jesus. And so what I want you to do is I want you to listen to Psalm 23. But instead of just picturing, you know, an abstract view of God, I want you to picture Jesus who says that he is the good shepherd. And I want you to connect these dots that David even couldn't see and realize what God is saying to you today. Psalm 23.1. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, may we see you today as our good shepherd. In the midst of whatever uncertainty that we have about who you are, what kind of a God you are, may we learn to trust that you look like Jesus. That Jesus is the exact representation of who you are. And may we learn to follow you. That we would not think that we have arrived, we would not be static in our approach, but we would learn to follow the direction that you are taking us each and every day. May we learn to hear your voice, to listen for you, to be sensitive when you were speaking, and to desire that you would speak to us. That we would not be content with our own voices and our own opinions, but that we would crave to hear from you, to hear where you want us to go, where you want to direct us. God, as a church community gathered at all of our different sites, for those watching online, may we be the kind of community 
that is defined by our ability to hear and respond to you. Because we believe that you are our good shepherd. May we go wherever it is that you would take us. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.